Thank you. Good morning. My name is Bill Malo. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community Church. And I would like to read for you the scripture that the message that God has for us is based on. And that scripture passage is in Luke, Luke uh, chapter 11, starting with the 33rd verse. That's page 870 on the uh, Bible at your chair. Luke chapter 11, verse 33. No one, after lighting the lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. When Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so that so he went in and reclined at a table, and the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Take a moment and reflect on these words. You might also read the next uh, 10 verses. Prepare your hearts for the message that God has for you. Thank you, Bill. Good morning, everyone. My name is Joseph Ray. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community, and I'm excited to get into this very warm and encouraging passage with us today. So it's, it's going to be a fun, lighthearted experience. Uh, no, pray with me. Dear Jesus, when we see you on earth in these biographies, these gospels, we see not only what you love, what draws your compassion, but we also see what draws your anger, even your fury. Your love means that 
not only do you care for certain things, but you hate the things that threaten the people that you care for. And so I pray today that as we see this just string of condemnations that you have, that we understand not just what you want for us, but what you don't want for us. We, under, we pray that we understand and see who we aren't supposed to be as we look at who we are. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So on September 26th, 1983, that's 39 years ago this past Monday, we were in the thick of the Cold War. Uh, many of you are probably old enough to remember it or at least remember some of it. Uh, but both the United States and the Soviet Union each had enough nuclear missiles to like annihilate the world multiple times over, and they were just pointed at each other constantly. And so there was this constant kind of umbrella of anxiety of what might happen to trigger just total nuclear annihilation of the world. And this had been a bad like couple of months, and so there was a, they were at high alert. Shortly after midnight on this night, the Soviets' early warning missile system blared an alarm. Their radar had detected an inter, uh, uh, intercontinental ballistic missile launched from the United States. And soon after, it said, this radar said, that there were four more after it. The officer on duty at the station was a lieutenant colonel named Petrov. And according to his orders, especially at this time of high alert, he was supposed to take any report of an incoming attack and report it immediately up the chain of command. And their plan at that point, which he wasn't maybe completely sure about, but this was sort of the written Soviet pro uh, protocol, was to say, if they fire at us, we fire everything at them. So it's kind of like the, the mafia thing in The Godfather. Like, they send one missile, we send all the missiles. And so what we do that for is that they know that we're going to achieve mutually assured destruction. If they try to attack us, we're going to end them whatever comes. Petrov knew that that was at least the potential result of him making that call and reporting on this radar system. And so what he had to decide in that moment is, do I report this up? Is this system telling me what's true? And what he decided in that moment for a number of reasons was not to trust the radar, to trust that it was delivering a false positive, not a real threat, but a fake threat. And thankfully, he turned out to be right. It was just picking up some sunlight bouncing off of clouds, and just the interaction of it with the, the way the system was designed triggered a false positive. But his decision not to trust that radar system really probably prevented a nuclear war from happening 39 years ago this week. So his decision to see the radar as unreliable saved us, <laughs> saved our lives. I share this story, and not just because it's a gripping story, and I'm thankful that we didn't annihilate ourselves 39 years ago, but it's actually a really interesting illustration of Jesus's teaching that we started our passage with today. See, in Jesus's day, people thought that vision worked kind of like radar works, that there's a light in my eye, and it sort of sends out a signal that interacts with the light in the world, and it bounces back, and that gives me an accurate kind of depiction of reality. We think of eyes more like windows that sort of let in the light that's there. And so we think that like a good eye is a clean window and a bad eye is a dirty window. But the way that they saw it was an eye is like a, that's why he says an eye is like a lamp. It's like a radar system. So it sends out a signal, picks up what's in the world and brings that back to me. 
And so a bad eye is a bad system. It's not just that it fails to see what's out there, but that it's looking for the wrong things. And it's going to pick up false negatives and false positives of what's in the world and bring those back to me. And so that's what he means when he talks about having a bad eye instead of a good eye. So what that means is that, you know, I might think nuclear strike over one of my kids knocking a glass over and then just totally let pass the temper tantrum I have in response to that glass getting knocked over, which is an absolutely hypothetical situation that never occurs in my household with my four children. Um, So no, it says is if our eye is bad, our body isn't going to be filled with light, an accurate moral picture of the world. It's going to be filled with darkness, and we're going to have false alarms going over things that aren't important, and we're going to have false negatives where we let by things that really are, and we let those grow in our hearts. See, Christianity teaches that Jesus wasn't just a human being, that he was a human being. He was completely human. But at the same time, he was also God the Son, God himself. And he showed us perfectly who God is and what God cares about. See, one of his biographies, which is called the Gospel of John, that's what the Gospels are, it calls him the light of God. So that means that he carried God's moral radar to the earth. God's own sense of what's true and false, what is good and bad, what's to be loved and what's to be rejected. And the central tension in the Gospels, maybe the main tension throughout all of the stories, is uh, the question is sort of summed up by this line from John. The light has come into the world, but the people love the darkness rather than the light. So you would assume that if the true light, God's own moral compass was in the world, that everyone would see it and everyone would respond to it. But what Jesus found, the tragedy of the Gospels over and over, is that there were large groups of people who saw God's moral light not as like the good that it was, but as a nuclear threat against their way of life, against their ego. And so we see people reject Jesus just like we see people love him. So in today's passage, Jesus confronts two groups of people who assume that they know God's moral radar. They assume that they've got the good lance. The Pharisees and the Old Testament lawyers, and we'll get to the lawyers in verse 45 uh, later on in the passage, but they were considered to be experts in religion and knowing exactly what God wanted and in following that law to a T. They were, had a, a higher standard than anyone else in what they knew and how they lived. They were extremely knowledgeable about the sacred texts. So they were all about like some Bible, some theology, some interpretation. Um, They knew all of those things. And they were publicly known for being in religious environments like the synagogue more than anyone else. So they were the people who lived in their churches. Most people assumed that if anyone has the light, they have it. If anyone knows what God wants for the world, it's these people. But what we see is that Jesus exposes this, not as God's light, but as man-made religion. That's what he confronts here. He says the radar system that the Pharisees and these Old Testament lawyers have, it's not the way that God sees the world. It's not what he cares about. It's a man-made religion, and it makes Jesus trigger nuclear strike when they see him, not the light of the world coming from heaven. And so what we're going to, and by the end of the story, Um, If you look down at verses 53 and 54, you can see kind of how this encounter ends. It says, as Jesus went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him 
to catch him in something he might say. So Jesus makes lifelong enemies of these people that everyone assumed they've got the good radar. He exposed it for a total falsehood, said their man-made religion was a sham. And so in the rest of the sermon, we're going to see how Jesus critiques the moral radar of the Pharisees and lawyers. He puts two big critiques against them, against their man-made religion. And we're going to see what those two critiques are. And then we're going to see what he really wanted. What God's heart said they should have been attuned to because it's what God was attuned to. We're going to look at the light that they should have seen. So Jesus gives two major condemnations, two critiques of man-made religion. Let's start in verse 37 to see the first. It says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who make the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So while Jesus is speaking, while he's delivering the teaching about the lamp, he's invited to dine by one of the Pharisees. Now in this day, hospitality was a big deal. It wasn't just like, hey, let's go grab dinner after the sermon is over. It would be more like what we call a dinner party. So the host would prepare a bunch of food. They would invite a lot of guests. And if they were wealthy or well-known, they would have a a circle of people who are actually going to eat at the table. And then sort of like the wider public would be allowed to come in and sort of spectate on the dinner. And so if there's scintillating conversation that happens, you know, everyone gets to see it and be part of it. In Luke 7, a while back, we actually saw another one of these where a Pharisee invited Jesus over, and then this woman who was a prostitute who was not on the guest list kind of comes in and starts washing his feet. And that triggers, you know, another a confrontation, a first confrontation between him and the Pharisees. So that's what Jesus is invited to, this dinner party where it's a big social shindig. You know, everyone is kind of putting on their best clothes, and the expectation is that everyone's going to show out what they've got that the Pharisees are going to be the biggest Pharisees they can. The rich people are going to be as rich as they can, and then everyone else is going to watch and see what happens. Now, we don't know why this Pharisee invited Jesus over. Um, They'd already had some tension, Jesus and the Pharisees, but on some level, the Pharisee probably thought that Jesus is one of us. He's interested in the law like we are. He seems really concerned about righteousness like we are. I bet that he's one of us. I bet that he'll fit right into my little social circle here. I bet he shares my religion. But the way that Jesus enters the party completely contradicts that. The Pharisees had this elaborate hand-washing ritual that wasn't about, like, cleaning. It wasn't about getting the dirt and mud off your hands. It was about showing how pure you were and how separate from the world. So it would be like running water from one hand to the other and, like, doing things with your fists. You know, it's uh, like an elaborate fist bump kind of thing. Um, But this ritual... Uh, was a religious ritual that separated them from the world. See, the most charitable way that we could understand who the Pharisees were was that they had a radical concern to purify themselves from the world. There was a world out there, and it's awful, and we're in here building a life that's clean. We're the ones who who know what God wants and who are going to be holy and pure and separate from all the folks out there, not just the Gentiles, but sort of the the, the not-so-great-off Jews either. And so they said, 
They took the laws of God in the Old Testament, and they intensified them. And so they said, all right, I'm supposed to rest on the Sabbath. Uh, I can't leave my house on the Sabbath. Or I have to, like, kind of count a maximum number of steps, or then I'm not resting anymore. Uh, some of you are like, that sounds great. You love to count a max number of steps. Um, but uh, I'm supposed to tithe my crops. All right, I'll tithe the herbs I grow in my garden. You know, it's like I pick 10 basil leaves. I'll give one to the Lord, whatever that means. Um, and so they, uh, you know, I'm supposed to cleanse myself before eating. All right, I'll make this ritual that shows me and everyone else that I am clean, that I care about honoring God. Um, the comedian Jim Gaffigan says some people say they love animals in a way that makes it sound like the rest of us drown puppies. You know, they're like, I love animals. You know, whatever else you people do. This is what the Pharisees were. They're like, I care about honoring God. I care about God's holiness. So that's who they were. And this ritual washing is a big sign of that. And Jesus completely ignores it. He just walks in. He takes his place at the table, bypasses the ritual entirely. And we don't know specifically what happened, but this Pharisee sees Jesus ignore the purification ritual, and in some way or other, he calls him out. That idea of marveling doesn't just mean like he wondered inside his head. He, he said something out loud. So we don't know if it was mockery of like, Jesus, you're going to wash first, right? Or if it was kind of like an out loud aside spoken to someone beside him, like he didn't do the wash. You know, whatever it was, Jesus detects something in this response that sets him off in a way that he hasn't been set off so far in the passage, in this story, that he launches into the verbal equivalent of like flipping over tables in the temple, which he does later on. And his first critique of man-made religion, the first thing that he says that he sets him off, is that it focuses on the outside and neglects the inside. Man-made religion focuses on the outside and it neglects the inside. So he says first, you wash the outside of a cup, so it looks like you could drink out of it, but the inside is filthy. Here I have a cup that, it's not the nicest cup in the world, but if I saw it at Fall Festival, you know, I would grab it up off the table and take a swig of what's inside. But if you look inside, tilt it because I don't fall out, it's dirt, mud, it's filthy inside. He says, this is who you are. You present to the world a clean cup, but inside, it's vile, it's awful. I'm going to set this way down low so I don't drink it by accident. Um, um, He says, you think that you're purifying your hands from the world. You make this great show of cleaning yourself on the outside. But your heart is every bit as corrupt as the sinners that you say you're separate from. And you think that just seeming clean on the outside is enough. The evangelical church world, which is sort of the kind of big tent that we're uh, part of, has been rocked over the last several years by outwardly clean people who turned out to be filled with greed, wickedness, and evil on the inside. People who were charismatic, people who were gifted, people who had great resumes, great sort of reputations off of social media or media culture. And so everyone assumed like, they're great. Let's kind of usher them further and further up in leadership until something happened and they exploded. We saw the contents of their heart and this has torched the reputation of the church in the eyes of many young people particularly, older people I imagine as well. But here's why the radar analogy matters. Here's why the lamp image is important. People saw the outside of their life and thought, I bet the inside's great too. The way they talk, the way they dress, the way they present themselves, I bet they're great. I bet that they're clean on the inside, 
They didn't press in. They didn't look. They didn't take warning when people demonstrated signs that they might not be on the inside, who they seem to be on the outside, and we get the results that we get. They seem to have given their outer lives to God, so their inner lives must have been given the same way. Jesus goes on in verse 42. He says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So the Pharisees said, tithing, great, I'm tithing everything. I'm tithing my garden plants. Um, Jesus says that's not wrong. He says that's a good thing in and of itself. That can be a good desire, but it's relatively minor compared to the actual heart of God. He says it's possible to do that, to take part in these like tiny little rituals that seem to show that you're fastidious, that you're squeaky clean, and then completely miss God's actual character and God's will. So their radar was looking on that minor outside obedience and blind to the inside of God's heart. So in our day, this might be someone who has a long list of things that they're really fastidious about. But their personal lives, their actual relationships, they're self-righteous, judgmental, and unloving. They can tell you all about places you shouldn't go, words you shouldn't say, food you shouldn't eat, people you shouldn't hang out with, things that you should be doing. And they apply those convictions with no grace, no mercy, no understanding. So anyone who doesn't talk the way they talk, vote the way they vote, dress the way they dress, uh, they're a bad influence. They're to be avoided and feared. G.K. Chesterton, who's a Christian journalist, he wrote this. He wrote, fastidiousness is the most pardonable of vices, but it's the most unpardonable of virtues. He says, if you have a sensitive conscience, if you have the vice of feeling like you need to make all the little particulars of your life clean and tidy, that's great. You can do that, and that's okay, but it's a weakness. To pretend that it's a strength and to judge other people on those little standards that you set for yourself, you're putting yourself in the wrong place. You're getting a minor thing mixed up with a major one. Cleanliness is next to godliness isn't from the Bible, and it isn't true. Finally, Jesus puts his finger on the heart of this critique. If you look at verse 43, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees! For you love the best seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. This is the heart of Pharisaism, the desire to be approved of by others, to get the respect of the good seat in the synagogue, to have people in the marketplace say, oh, how are you? And then I got to shake his hand, you know, to say, like, I saw Pastor Joseph in the parking lot of Walmart yesterday, like Bill Hatcher did. So Bill and I had a conversation. I bet it made his day, right? So that's... (laughs) So that's what it means to have the radar tuned to not what God thinks of me, but what other people think of me. Do I have a good reputation in the world? And if so, I must be all right. Now, before we rush to judge the Pharisees for these things, because it is wrong, but before we rush to judge, we need to pause and ask ourselves, is it easier to clean up my image or my soul? Is it easier to clean up my image or my soul? Is it easier to yell at the kids all Sunday morning and then say as you're like driving in, it's like, all right, let's put on a smile and act like we love each other. Or is it easier to actually love my children through the difficult work of getting them ready for church? Is it easier to dress up nicely and talk about, you know, religion or talk about justice if you're kind of in a blue culture and, you know, impress people with your words, having a compassionate seeming social media profile or to repent of sin? to give your whole heart to God 
to actually bear the burdens of people in need. Which of these comes more naturally to me? So tidying up our image isn't easy, you know, it may be hard, but it's a lot easier than changing our hearts. It's a lot easier to set the radar on outward appearances rather than the inward condition of my soul and the soul of others. But to do that is a man-made religion that completely misses the heart of God. So that's Jesus' first critique. His next critique is directed toward the lawyers who specialized in knowing the Bible and the scholarly interpretive tradition around it really, really well. So they were known for their knowledge. They're seminary graduates. They're Bible scholars. Um, and once again, there were people who should have seen Jesus for who he was, but their radars are off too. So in verse 45, you have a lawyer comment after Jesus has gone off this way on the Pharisees. He says, uh, teacher, you're insulting us too. He's like, we're under this critique that you're leveling. And it's almost funny. It's kind of like Jesus says, oh, I'm sorry. Woe to you too. He's like, let me make myself clear. Um, so this critique rolls on. And we see the key theme of it in verse 46. He says, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So man-made religion gives man-made burdens and ignores God's. It gives man-made burdens and ignores God's burden. The, these lawyers were supposed to be experts in God's word. And so they were the people that you should have been able to ask for help of what does it mean to honor God in this business transaction or to really keep the Sabbath well or to love my neighbor well? In other words, can you help me see God's light? People came to them asking for light. But the lawyers were so proud of their own learning that instead of help, they'd say, well, this scholar says this and this one says this and that one says this. So why don't you start keeping all of those and then come back and let me know how that's going? So they would add burdens on to the word of God and then they'd send people off without lifting a finger to help, without making things any easier for them. And people would go away from them, not with a clearer sense of God's light, but with a heavier list of religious things to do that felt crushing instead of life-giving. There's a sitcom called Parks and Recreation. It's a ton of fun. Um, there's this character named Tom who's kind of a selfish man-child. And there's one episode where he asks all his friends to help him move. He's like, yeah, I'm you know, switching apartments. I just have some boxes to move, you know, whatever. And they get over to his house, and he has done nothing. He hasn't even bought the boxes. And so they spend literally all day moving this man who just said, like, I need your help moving. So that's kind of like what Jesus has in mind here. I'm just like, you come for a little help, and you come away with an out, you know, hours and hours worth of labor at the end result of this conversation. Jesus summarizes the effect of this in verse 52 of our passage. He says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So he says, you stand outside of God's kingdom. You're not even in it. You act like you have the key, but when people come to you, you hold it away from them. You've thrown it away, and so they don't get to get in after they come to you. Like a gatekeeper who doesn't even live in the house. It says you've piled up these customs of religion. You know, maybe in our day, they're probably customs of politics and social class that make it seem like you can't get to God if you're not a college-educated, clean-cut professional. These lawyers impose man-made burdens. But Jesus says they wanted nothing to do with God's burdens. 
If you look at verses 47 and 48, he says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are their witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. So Jesus says, basically, you pretend to honor God's prophets, but your spiritual ancestors, the people living like you live now, they're the ones who killed them. They're the ones who put them to death because they wouldn't hear the burden that God wanted his people to carry. They preferred their own, and so they slaughtered the prophets rather than hear them. What he has in mind is something like uh, this passage I'm going to read from the prophet Isaiah. I'm going to read a few verses from Isaiah 58. This is God speaking to Israel. He says, cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. They say, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Man-made religion says this is how you do it. Here's the rituals, here's the commands, here's how you clean up, here's how you do all the things. And God says, that's not what I want. That's not what my radar is tuned to. My radar is tuned to the burdens of the people who are oppressed by this way of life, by the wealthy. Because if you're worshiping to feast uh, or to indulge yourself, to boost your own ego and gain power over others, God says, I won't hear it. And in verse 6 of the same passage, he says, Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. So God tried to tell Israel, this is the burden I want you to carry. Not the burden of man-made religious observance, the burden of the real needs of the real people around you. The burden of obeying me from the heart. That's what I want. They wanted nothing to do with it. So if these are the critiques, what does God want? What is God radar, God's radar tuned to? The critique in Isaiah shows part of it, which Jesus alluded to in our passage. So Jesus told the Pharisees that they neglected justice and the love of God. The Apostle James wrote in a letter named after him that religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So that's where we begin to see God's heart. God wants people to be carrying the burdens of those in need, not making their lives harder, but making them easier, to break yokes of oppression, to share our lives with those in need. The other things are fine, but these are essential. It's the question, do I love my neighbor as myself? That's the first thing that God cares about. And the second thing Jesus alludes to in verse 41 of our passage, where he says, give as alms those things that are within. See, God sees our hearts. 
He, doesn't, he sees past the outside, the image that we cultivate for others. He sees who we really are in our souls. The true self is probably way less clean and messier than, and less impressive than my outer self. And he wants that. He wants you as you really are, not as you pretend to be. He wants me as I really am, not as I pretend to be. He wants me to be fully devoted to him with all the mess, with all the sin, with all the not great stuff I bring to the table. That's what God wants. He wants from the heart me to be loving him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the problem, as any honest person will see immediately, is that that feels impossible. How do I love God from the heart? How do I gladly bear the burden of my neighbor? Man-made religion, in a sense, is easier. It's less stressful, it's less fun, but it's a little bit easier than giving God my entire heart. And if Jesus was like the lawyers, it would be impossible. Here's a burden. It's heavier than you thought. Best of luck. I'll see you when you die. We'll talk about how you did. We're going to close with one more saying of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. So I'm going to read it. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. See, man-made religion is a burden that seems lighter than Jesus's but it's one that we have to carry on our own and it's going to crush us. And if it doesn't crush us, it doesn't matter because we'll completely miss God's heart along the way. Jesus's burden is in a sense greater, but it's lighter because we're not carrying it alone. Jesus says, if you come to me feeling the burden of the call to love God with everything you've got from the heart out with the call to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, it's going to crush you, but I'm going to carry you. Jesus carries us in that, and he doesn't just give us like little bits of help along the way. He takes the burden not just of our need to obey, but of our failure to obey. He takes the burden of our sin, and he bears that burden for us. He bore it under God's wrath on the cross all the way down to hell, and he left it behind, and he carries us all the way up into the presence of God so that we are borne along, we are carried along, not by our own strength, but by his, by his grace. So that's what we celebrate uh, when we celebrate uh, gospel religion, true religion, that we want to carry the burdens of our neighbors. We need to carry the burdens of our neighbors, but we can do that because Jesus has carried us. Jesus died for us. Jesus lives for us. And he brings us into and holds us in the presence of God. And that's what we celebrate when we take the meal of communion, that's how we're going to close our service. See, these elements of communion are visible signs of Jesus' grace. Jesus had this last meal with his disciples, and he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this body, this is my body, broken for you. He says, you're going to fail to keep God's word, and so my body is going to be broken for the death that you deserve. He also took a cup. He poured it. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood 
that's poured out for you. And when you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim that you belong to a covenant that I have started and that I maintain by my grace. And so we celebrate that by taking the elements of communion. So what we do, how we take, is we peel off the little top layer of plastic here. We take the bread. It's the body of Jesus that we eat. And we take the cup. It's the blood of Jesus' grace. And we drink. Amen. Pray with me. Jesus, you provide a better life for us than man-made religion. You tell us that you don't care nearly as much about the outside as you care about the inside. You care about our souls. That you don't um, give us burdens that we can't bear, but you carry our burdens because you earned our life for us. You earned God's grace for us. And so I pray today for all of us that we would see signs that we are living by human religion, that our radar is tuned to the wrong thing. We would repent of that. We would turn and let our hearts be transformed by you. We pray this in your name. Amen.